Well, open your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. We are beginning, or we began our summer series through the book of Psalms last Sunday. If you remember, our brother, Pastor Tim Carnes, um, spearheaded the summer series as he preached Psalm 51, which was a a personal lament psalm from the heart of David, reminiscing about his journey to repentance uh, in his own life. And so now we have an opportunity this morning to be in Psalm 1. The Hebrew word for psalms is a word which means praises, praises. The Psalter, by which we mean the whole of the 150 psalms that we have in our Bibles, was essentially a hymn book of the the Israelites. Uh, One uh, savvy preacher has called it Israel's greatest hits, um, because that's what it was. It was a book of praises, or it is a book of praises for God's people. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, translated by some Alexandrian Jews in about 250 B.C. or so, gave the Psalms the title Salmoi, which meant songs accompanied by the plucking of strings. The point being that the Psalms are praises to be sung. But not only are they praises to be sung, they are prayers to be uttered to God by God's people. Some of these are personal prayers. Others are communal prayers expressing the deepest heartfelt um, beliefs and struggles and afflictions of God's people are these psalms. There are different kinds or types of psalms, such as thanksgiving psalms, praise psalms, lament psalms, wisdom or instructional psalms, which basically teaches uh, about the fact that God wants us to live according to his word, according to his law. There are trust psalms designed to move us, to to put our trust and dependence upon the Lord. There are royal or messianic psalms pointing forward to to the coming of the Messiah, who we know now to be Jesus Christ. There are even imprecatory psalms, and I know some of you guys really like imprecatory psalms. Those are psalms that are driven and motivated by a zeal for God and His glory. Uh, We cry out to God to punish evildoers for the sake of His name, to do justice here on this earth. Those are imprecatory psalms, and we're going to see one of those in this series. And so over the next 12 weeks, we're in this uh, Psalms Summer Series, and I want you to know that I've picked picked 12 psalms that really are going to fall under one of these types or kinds of psalms, so that you get a sampling of every kind or type of psalm in the Psalter, okay? It's going to be a great time together looking at the character of God and how we process our sin, our struggles, our trials, our difficulties, our afflictions uh, through the very lenses of who God is and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He has sent to save sinners who turn from their sins and trust in Him. It's going to be a wonderful time of growth and edification, and I trust that you will be here for this three-month series through the Psalms. And as we understand and interpret and apply the Psalms, I want you to remember that the Psalms are Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry, that is the, the genre by which we mean the category or the type of literature that the Psalms are. They are Hebrew poetry. And so as we work through the series... We want to highlight some of the beautiful aspects of that Hebrew poetry. I know that Pastor Carnes did that a little bit last week. If you notice some of those beautiful um, aspects of Hebrew poetry, he highlighted them. And the pertinence of those poetic effects or literary devices 
for our understanding, uh, interpretation, and application of the Psalms. Okay, so we'll do that as we go through these Psalms as well. Not for intellectual reasons, or not because that's the scholarly thing to do, but because it helps us understand the Psalms, interpret them rightly, and apply them to our lives. Okay, so that is the purpose of understanding those Hebrew aspects, uh, Hebrew poetry aspects of these Psalms. So today we have the privilege of looking at Psalm 1, which is a wisdom or instruction psalm, which as I told you, wisdom or instruction psalms are designed to encourage the reader to live according to Torah. Torah meaning the law of God. You know, we have a tendency to think of God's law as Old Testament, that's bad, that was for the, for the, the past, but now we live in an age of grace, so the, so the law, we're no longer under the law, and we don't need to live according to the law, period. And we tend to see it almost as an evil or bad thing that God created or God gave. But First Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9 actually tells us that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, meaning for the right, for its intended purpose. The law of God was designed to, to, by God to do multiple things. At the top of the list, to reveal His holy and righteous character. And it was to reveal also to His people the way that they were to approach Him through the sacrificial system in holiness and in reverence. So it revealed God's character, how the people needed to, to worship and approach God. And all of the instructions in the law of God, all of those do's and don'ts, or to be an expression as they obeyed the law of God of love for the Lord and love for their fellow uh, Israelites. So it was love that would motivate them to obey those commandments by God. And it was an expression of their care for other people. And also, 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 tells us that essentially the law was given to expose our sin. Of the fact that we are inadequate to fulfill the law perfectly. Right? Whoever stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all, says James chapter 2 and verse 10. The only one who came and perfectly fulfilled the law in the place of sinners who turn from their sins and trust in Christ is Jesus Christ. He came to fulfill the law, not to do away with it, right? To fulfill it. And so it's very important that as we talk about Torah, about law and Psalms, that we always remember the great meta narrative of Scripture, who is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one who came to fulfill the law. And it's only as we trust in Him that we can be righteous in union with Christ, right? So we must always remember that. In fact, some people believe that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 should be treated and taught and understood as one unit. Because if you notice in Psalm 1 and verse 1, the psalm begins with, How blessed is the man... And then if you look over in Psalm 2 and verse 12, the, the Psalm 2 ends with how blessed are all who take refuge in Him, meaning the Son of God, who we are called to worship in Psalm 2 verse 12. So like bookends, right, are those two statements of blessed is the man who does this. But ultimately, Psalm 2 verse 12 tells us that we can only be blessed as we, have, uh, we take our refuge in Jesus Christ alone. Otherwise, we cannot perfectly fulfill the law and, uh, and, and be justified before God. Our justification, acceptance, our granting of favor before God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So we need to remember that. Now, Psalm 1 is the front door, if you will, to the, uh, the front door entrance to the Psalms. 
Like a gateway, Psalm 1 introduces us to the whole Psalter. And if you notice, as I pointed out already in Psalm 1, verse 1, it begins with the words, How blessed is the man. And I don't want you to look past that so quickly. Because right off the bat, this psalm tells us something very important. This, this psalm that is the preface to the rest of the Psalter, beloved, to the whole of the 150 psalms, tells us something about God that we often forget, and it is this. That our blessing and happiness is something that God cares about. That God wants. Think about that. The very entrance into the Psalms and the opening verse says, How blessed or happy is the man, and then he will expand on that. God desires that his creatures experience blessing and happiness. We tend to think of and picture God as some ogre up in heaven who is restrictive and doesn't care about what's good for you, that is only concerned for his glory, and rightfully he should be first and foremost. It is right and righteous of him to be concerned for his glory first and foremost. But also, not only does he work everything in creation and and in salvation for his glory, but he does it for the good of his people. Those two things, the glory of God and God's good, uh, uh, the good of his creatures work together in everything that God does. And so right off the bat in Psalm 1 verse 1, I want you to be reminded of the great truth that God is so good that he desires to bless you. That he desires that you would be happy. That you would experience his blessing and live under his blessing. But the question is, and the question that Psalm 1 answers is this. How? How might we achieve this state of blessing? This sense of fulfillment and meaningfulness. How might we experience a hope that that what we are doing here on this earth for Him will have lasting permanence and significance when life seems often so empty and the world only seems to be getting worse? How might we experience that blessing of God? Psalm 1 helps us answer that question and gives us the answer from God Himself. And it does so by challenging us to consider two distinct paths of the wise and the wicked and their distinct ends. If you're taking notes, those are your two main points. There are two distinct paths, the path of the wise and the wicked, and, there, and, both, and both of those are very dis- end very differently. There are two distinct ends or finish lines, if you will, to those two very distinct paths of the wise and the wicked. And as we go through this psalm, I want you to ask yourself personally, not the person next to you, not wondering about your family member who doesn't know the Lord, not any other person sitting in this auditorium. I want you to ask yourself personally, which path am I on? Which path am I on? Whose side am I on this morning? Who am I living for? Am I living for myself or am I living for God? Am I... Living according to the way of God, or am I living my way or the highway? You know, Frank Sinatra had this song called My Way back in the day. Some of you are familiar with the song. And if you go and you read some of the lyrics of Frank Sinatra's famous song, My Way, it's it's basically conveying this this picture of a man who has ruled himself, the self-dependent, self-sufficient man who chooses his own path, makes his own choices with no regard for the consequences of the people that he's bulldozed over in making those choices. 
It is the ultimate song that really conveys what is the spirit of our age. I did it my way is the refrain over and over again in that. It doesn't matter how I had impacted other people, my choices, as long as I did it my way, he says. Well, Psalm 1 is the complete antithesis, the opposite of this humanistic philosophy. It calls upon each of us, Psalm 1 does, to relinquish our rights, our claims to personal autonomy and freedom. Psalm 1 calls upon us to open our eyes to our spiritual lethargy, to ask ourselves, how are we truly living for the glory of God, walking in His way? And like a bucket of ice water poured on your head right now, I pray that the Spirit of God would apply His truth to our hearts and lives, beloved, so that we would consider these contents and the path that we should be on all the more as people here on this earth. And so how does the psalmist do this? How does he get our attention? Well, first of all, as I said, he, he calls us to consider first that there are two distinct paths. There's not a neutral path. There's no gray path. There aren't eight ways in life. There are two paths, two ways. Right? There's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of light. There's the narrow way or the broad way. There's the path that leads to holiness and the path that leads to destruction. There are only two paths. And here he articulates first the path of the wise in verses 1 through 3. Notice in verse 1 that he begins with an emphatic declaration that the person who is wise and who lives in a state of, will live in a state of blessing. Because of the fact that they avoid certain things in their life. He says in the Hebrew, how blessed. It's intensified. They're giving the meaning of, oh, how very happy. It's plural there. Oh, the happinesses, plural, of the man who avoids these things. That he's going to articulate. This state of happiness is not based upon one's favorable circumstances. It's not based upon a passive feeling or it's not a passive feeling. It's not based upon what you own or the toys that you accumulate on this earth, no matter how valuable they might be. But it's a real state of joy, of pleasure that surpasses all comprehension, of fulfillment based upon one's relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is who the blessed, happy person is, according to this psalm. The world would have us believe different. And if you want to be happy, says the world, you need to follow your heart. Follow your appetites. Follow after your desires. Enjoy all the pleasures of this world. Enjoy, follow after the things that your, that your lusts um, uh, take you after, your, des- your evil desires. Don't worry about later consequences of your choices. After all, God is up there. He doesn't want you to miss out on all the fun. He certainly will understand that you are a person who makes mistakes. And you were weak. And in the end, everybody will be in heaven together. Right? Eh. Wrong. The world system is humanistic, isn't it? Meaning what? It puts humans at the center of the universe. It seeks to remove God from His rightful throne as the sovereign ruler of the universe to whom we are accountable. And it puts man at the center. The world system is humanistic. Not God-centered. But what we are told in Psalm 1 is that the truly blessed or happy person is blessed because they have God at the center of their life. God and His Word is their primary devotion, as we will see. And maybe some of you are saying at this point, yeah, indeed, that is true. God is at the center of my life. 
But we get to test our devotion based upon what he expends upon here, don't we? Because if you are truly devoted to God, then there are things that this, the psalmist says that you are going to avoid as a pattern of your life and things that you are going to pursue. And I put it this way because ultimately what you avoid and what you pursue, beloved, reveals what you are committed to and what you are devoted to, or more specifically, who you are devoted to and who you are committed to, whether it is God on the one hand, your creator, who has rightful, sovereign rule over your life, or you are on the throne. So notice, first, what do they avoid? They avoid the world. They avoid the world. I'm not talking about the fact that we ought not to love the people of the world. I'm not talking about the fact that we ought to go live on some island away from people from the world who don't know Jesus Christ. That is not what I'm talking about. In fact, if somebody hadn't reached out to you prior to coming to know Jesus Christ, from a human perspective, you wouldn't be here, right? God used somebody in your life to come to share the gospel, to do good, to show Christ to you, and he used that sovereignly in his purposes to draw you to himself so that you trusted in Jesus and you are here as a believer. So I'm not talking about not having a heart for people. I'm not talking about not reaching out to people in the world. That's not what I'm talking about. I think this verse articulates what we mean by that. He says, how blessed is the man, and notice the three negative statements, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Here are the three negative statements describing what the wise person who is blessed by God, what he or she runs away from. And notice the parallelism already in verse 1. There are three sets of parallel terms right there. Notice in verse 1, we must reject the counsel, the path, and the seat of scoffers. Second set, we must reject the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. And third set, we must not walk, right, according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There are these parallel sets of terms here. And there is a progression by the wicked person and a gradual descent into greater wickedness and godlessness as described by these metaphors of walk, of stand and sit. Notice in verse 1, first, the wise person does not walk, which is a metaphor for living in the counsel of the wicked. Meaning that this person, the wise person, doesn't take their cues from the wicked. So that they adopt the thinking, the philosophies, the ideologies, the values of the wicked. And by the way, I know images come to your mind when you think of wicked. You're thinking of explicit sinners who wear their heart on their sleeve and it's all over them. And you can smell sin in them when they walk into a room, right? Not so, beloved. The wicked can actually do some good things. Wicked people can actually do some humanitarian things. They can give some of their possessions away. In fact, many of them do. They do that, but listen to me. They don't do it for the glory of God. They don't do it for the Lord. They might do some kind things, but they don't acknowledge God in their life. They have no regard for God. They are atheistic functionally. Even if they say they believe in God, he's a God of their own creation, and they disregard what God says in areas, ethical areas of their lives, because ultimately they sit on the throne themselves. That is the wicked. They disregard what God says. They don't live accountable to God. They don't live God consciously. Romans 1 describes the downward spiraling of the wicked in our world, right? And where does Romans 1 begin? 
It begins by saying that wicked people pretend or act like there is no God so that they don't thank God. They don't acknowledge God. And then that leads to a greater uh, degree of decadence and, and downward spiraling where there are then manifestations of wickedness in their lives, sexual immorality and homosexuality and hatred and all of those things. Disobedience to parents, all of those things are manifestations ultimately of the root cause being that people don't live accountable to God, giving Him thanks. That's the problem. That's the problem. So that's, those are who the wicked are. People who don't believe in God, they don't acknowledge God, they don't live accountable to God, who create a God of their own creation. And there's a downward spiral, a gradual descent. If you notice in verse 1, not only do they not walk or live in the counsel of the wicked, but they don't stand in the path or the way of sinners. Not only does a wise person who lives under the blessing of God not adopt the thinking of the wicked, but they don't imitate the behavior or the conduct of sinners. That is those who who cross God's boundaries, who don't obey God's instructions, who create their own path, who trespass the boundaries that God has set before them. The wise person who is blessed does not adopt their behavior, their conduct. Thirdly, notice, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That is, the wise person who wants to be blessed doesn't befriend those who scoff at God, who are scornful, who ridicule the name of God and ridicule those who love the Lord, who reject God and His truth. And listen, beloved, how many a person have we known, family members or friends or co-workers or neighbors or whatever, how many people have we known over the years that did not start off as scoffers? Right? It's a gradual descent to being a scoffer, somebody who speaks against God and, and his, his nature and, and the fact that he is. It didn't start off that way, did it? What happened? This person surrounded himself or herself with dangerous associations, took their cues from the world system with the great philosophers that didn't believe in Jesus or didn't acknowledge God in his glory, taking their cues from those individuals, and those individuals shape their thinking. The media shapes their thinking. The politicians shape their thinking, right? And then it leads to destructive behavior because as, as thinking goes, then goes behavior, like a sponge, right? You stick a sponge inside of dirty water. You squeeze that sponge outside of that dirty water. What is going to come out? Dirty water. So it begins with the thinking, and as the thinking goes, it expresses itself under sinful conduct, choices that dishonor God. And then, eventually, they become full-blown haters and mockers of God, speaking evil against the very God who created them, the very God who gives His common grace to them, who allows their hearts to beat and for them to be able to breathe His fresh air and walk on His creation. They become mockers against God Himself. But it didn't start off that way, right? It was a gradual descent onto greater and greater spiritual darkness. Yes, we are born uh, and we are by our nature sinners who stand condemned before the Lord. Before we ever even are conscious of a sin, we are by nature sinners and we already need a Savior to redeem us. But as we live life, there are greater manifestations of sin, right, in our lives. Expressions of that sinful nature and greater spiritual decadence. C.H. Spurgeon commenting on this downward spiral in verse 1 says this, quote, When men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly who forget God. The evil is rather practical than habitual. 
But after that, they become habituated to evil and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if left alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. They have taken their degree in vice. And as true doctors of damnation, they are installed. End quote. It's a gradual descent, isn't it? Downward spiraling into greater wickedness and manifestations of godlessness. This is a frightening place to be, right? Frightening place to be. And so what we learn at the very beginning of Psalm 1 verse 1 is that, listen to me, loving the world no matter how satisfying it may seem, beloved, won't bring blessing to your life. That's what the Word of God says. But it's so tempting, isn't it? It's so alluring. So seemingly satisfying, isn't it? And when you're young, the younger that you are, the more you tend to think this way. That it's about living it up on this earth and accumulating those things and doing those things so that you might have satisfaction in your life. But even as older people, the older that we get, we need to be careful with this as well. That the world offers us no ultimate fulfillment, you understand. It doesn't. That's why 1 John 2.15 tells us that no matter how good the world looks, the world is passing away and also its lusts, Right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are passing away, he says, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Forever. See, we don't think about this until it's too late. Where these paths lead to. That the things of the world are temporal and quickly fleeting. This is why deathbeds are so telling, aren't they? I have met people who on their deathbeds, as they reflected back on their life, Felt guilty, regretful, even to the point of despair. Why? Because on their deathbed, they start to replay and have flashes before their eyes of their whole life and the choices that they've made and the people that they've hurt and the experiences that they've had that they wish that they would be able to be removed, that their memories would be removed of those things. As they rewind their lives, they pursued so-called happiness according to the way that the world defined it. But in the end, it was bitter as wormwood. They experienced pleasures. They owned much. They had a lot of experiences. In some, they lived for themselves. Not for God. They didn't acknowledge God. They didn't acknowledge His Messiah. They didn't acknowledge God's Savior who could save them from their sins. They wasted their life. You need to read John Piper's book sometime called Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life. John Piper talks about the fact that his father, being a preacher, for years preached the gospel, obviously from the pulpit, and there was this one old man who for years sat under John Piper's father's ministry. And one day, finally, the gospel hit this guy. He was hostile and avoided any interaction about spiritual things. But one day he hears John Piper's dad preaching the gospel and he comes to faith in Jesus. He comes to the front of the, of the, of the church to receive Christ. And he's obviously joyful over that forgiveness that he's going to receive in Christ. But the other thing that John Piper speaks about that as a kid struck him was that this old man kept saying, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. Crying and sobbing. Because he understood that even though he had been forgiven of his sins, that he had squandered his life. He could never take those days, those weeks, those, those months, those years back. He wishes now he had more time to live for the Lord. Beloved, I pray that none of you would be in that place. 
I pray that there would be none of you sitting in here who are going to get to the point, to the end of your life, your latter stages of life, taking your last breaths, and you still have not, and you look back and you can say, I've wasted my life. And even then there's forgiveness, isn't there? Like the, like the thief on the cross. In the last minute, Jesus said, today you shall be with me in paradise. Right? So there's always forgiveness even in the last minute. Do you really want to play with fire? Do you really want to do that? I don't want to take my chances with my soul. I'll tell you that right now. I want to turn from my sin. Today is the day of salvation. I want to trust in Christ today. Today. People don't often think about the end very much, right? And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now notice on the positive side, if he, this person that is blessed is to avoid, to run from, allowing the world to shape his or her thinking, the conduct of the world, ultimately becoming a scoffer themselves. On the positive side in verse 2, what does this person pursue? Because life is not just about saying no to things, it's also about pursuing, right? What do we pursue, verse 2? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Notice the emphasis there on the law of the Lord, twice in the middle of the verse, twice which here refers to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. But as we look at the rest of the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament, it's not limited to only the first five books of the Old Testament. It refers to all instruction and all guideline that comes from the Lord, namely all of the Word of God, right? Ultimately for us. This is the person who delights in in the Word of God, which means to take pleasure in. To find joy and fulfillment in in what God says and what He reveals about Himself by means of His Word. So much so that that the law of the Word of God is your meditation day and night. Meaning all the time. This speaks of devotion, doesn't it? It's about devotion. Delighting is about loving God so much that you you are, are pursuing Him daily in relationship to want to know Him all the more and to feast and relish upon who He is and His infinite majesty and glory and in what He's done through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to delight in the law of the Lord because the Bible was not available to God's people in written form like in our day. The people of God then would memorize the word and repeatedly contemplate it. So the word meditate there means to murmur inwardly, to mutter, to groan within oneself, to ponder or reflect by talking to oneself. In fact, that word meditate is the same word used in Psalm 2 and verse 1, if you notice, of those who devise a vain thing, who in low murmuring, whispering conversations are hatching a plot against God with one another. Same idea. The wicked are devoted to doing that in Psalm 2 verse 1. The person who is wise, who is living under the blessing of God, is about meditating upon the person of God. One of the wonderful things that we're going to do during this psalm series, uh, during the scripture reading and prayer, is we're going to read through the entirety of Psalm 119 together in little segments, and pray over those passages. Why? Because we want to be reminded of the importance of feasting and relishing in the Word of God, which reveals God. Amen? That's what we want to do. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I may not sin against thee. See, when we prioritize the Word of God and internalize His Word, it becomes like guardrails to keep us from going wayward, right? 
more that we internalize His Word. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love Thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Why do we meditate upon the law of God? Because we love the Word, but we love the God that the Word reveals. We love Him. That's the essence of Christianity, isn't it? Listen to me, beloved. Don't diminish or reduce Christianity to a set of do's and don'ts, a set of demands to follow by your own moral bootstraps, as if that is what Christianity consists of. Yes, God wants obedience, but He wants us to obey because we love Him and because we delight in Him. Because we know that He has kind intentions for us. That's what we desire from Him, why we should obey Do you, professing Christian this morning, love and delight in God? Well, yes, I serve Him. I'm not talking to you about service. Yes, I obey. I'm not talking to you about your obedience. Do you serve and obey out of a love and delight for who He is? Do you strive and wrestle and tug and struggle to serve Him out of a heart for love and gratitude for what He has done in Jesus Christ? That's the question. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. See, that's the problem with many of us. We don't taste of the kindness and the goodness of the Lord by means of His Word daily. We don't taste. We dabble in some Bible verses. We do some daily crumb today. We don't even reflect upon the verse in that daily bread. We do things in a hurry. We think 30 seconds of reading the Bible and maybe 10 seconds of uttering a little prayer. That's, cha-ching, I just punched in my, my time card, right? That's not tasting of the Lord. It's like having a great, warm, luscious meal coming out of the oven, right? And you just put it on the table and the whole family just stares at the meal that has been prepared so carefully and everybody just stares at it. Is that going to satisfy anybody? What do you got to do? Taste it for crying out loud, right? And take more bites. And then relish in your mouth that wonderful meal that has been prepared. So that ultimately, as everyone eats, they're satisfied, at least temporarily, right? So it is with the intake of the Word of God, beloved. To delight in the Word of God is to be absolutely saturated with the Word so that you are thinking biblically and you're thinking about the majesty of God and the gospel and all the implications of how you need to live in the light of all that God has done for you. Some of us are famished because we are not regularly in the Word. And even if we read the Word, we're not deliberately saturating ourselves with the Word, delighting in it, applying it to our lives. We're not doing that. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That verse doesn't mean, by the way, that if you delight in yourself in the Lord, He's going to give you everything you want. Health, wealth, prosperity, Right? No suffering, no trials. That's not what it means. It means that when we delight ourselves in the Lord and we find our satisfaction and joy in Him and our pursuit of Him, listen to me, He changes you. He puts the right desires in your heart and life. So that now you desire to walk with Him, to relish in Him, to walk in loving obedience to Him. He will give you the desires of your heart, right? which will lead to God-exalting actions and obedience. When we delight in the Word, we're delighting in Him. 
For his word reveals he who is the lover of our souls. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 47 and 48 says this, I shall delight in your commandments which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Why do I do this? Lord, because I love you. And I love your word. Because your word tells me about you. And your majesty and your glory. Your goodness and your mercy and your kindness and your justice. Accomplished in Jesus Christ. which showed your great love and your grace. And your desire to bless me even though I'm an undeserving condemned sinner. The word reveals all of those things. Now notice, what's the result of rejecting the world and embracing the Lord and His Word? Verse 3, This person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. He uses a simile there of of a tree to illustrate something about this blessed, happy person who delights themselves in the law of the Lord. And unlike the trees that have been planted in fields where Rainfall is scarce or lacking. This tree is firmly planted by streams of water, by irrigation canals, if you will, where where fresh water is abundant and overflowing. And because of that strategic location, this tree flourishes and is fruitful. That's the person who, who relishes and delights in the law of the Lord. Here, picture the law of God here is pictured as streams of water. I couldn't help but to think about Jesus with the Samaritan woman talking to her about a living water, that if she partook of this living water, she never had to go back to that well anymore, right? And who was the living water? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. This person who delights in God's law will flourish and bear the fruit of righteousness. Even in the midst of your struggles, even in the midst of your trials, doesn't mean that you won't struggle and you won't be discouraged and all of that. The Psalms speak so much about that. But the Psalms also speak about the fact that ultimately they are led into the presence of God to see everything that they're going through, including their struggles, through the very lenses of the character of God and what he has done through his son. You see, That this person will prosper does not mean that he will have everything he wants, right? Including all riches and material possessions. Or that this person won't ever suffer. Listen, the Psalms are replete with examples of the opposite of spiritual and physical suffering, aren't they? You cannot go to the Psalms and draw away after, draw from the Psalms after you reflected on the Psalms that the Christian life is about no struggles anymore, no trials, no difficulties, no battle with sin. You ever read the Psalms and walked away with that idea? Not me. You're tugging and struggling. And fighting. And of course the believer does it by the strength of the Spirit of God and the, and the grace of God. So that we would live well under our trials and sufferings. It does mean, however, that this person will be prosperous in the sense that they will be spiritually enriched in this life and moreover in the life to come. They live well under their sufferings. They will bear much fruit even in the midst of their struggles. Listen, if you don't have God and you don't delight in His Word and you don't have Christ... You are living in a broken world and there is no hope and everything is helpless and useless and vanity. That was Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes, right? Apart from the fear of the Lord and ultimately expressed in putting faith in Jesus, all is vanity, all is useless, all is meaningless in life. But when you live according to the law of the Lord, 
which ultimately reveals Christ, our Savior. You experience joy and peace an intimate relationship with God, the, the peace and the joy that surpasses all comprehension that comes only by knowing God intimately. And of course, that's only in this world, right? Where we get a foretaste of our relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. Imagine the world to come. Where we will be with God in His presence forever and never, unhindered by our sin, evil motivations and thoughts and attitudes and selfishness and all of that. Imagine, beloved, a time in the future where our prosperity is going to flesh itself out in Christ returning and there's no longer any sin and we'll see Him as He is, worshiping the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ah! Right? This is the wise person. What about the path of the wicked in verse 4? Notice, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. The wicked are not so. Really, Lord? Really? What about, I mean, I see them on TV. They look really happy. I see the prosperous and they're with their riches and movie stars and celebrities and all of that. They look pretty stinking happy. Really? The wicked are not so? That's what the Word of God says. Listen to me. Because Satan has, has contributed to a world system that is deceptive, isn't it? You think that he's going to tell you but through the world system that people sin and the things that they are pursuing will ultimately lead them to destruction? You really think that? Satan is, disguises himself as an angel of light, you understand. He is deceptive. He deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden and told her, if you partake of the forbidden fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He deceived her. And that is our world system that tells people that walking on a certain path and pursuing all of their hopes and dreams, irrespective of what God thinks, living their lives for self-worship and pleasure and all of those things, won't have consequences. Listen to me, they will have consequences. This verse tells us that the wicked are not so, namely they are not blessed, they will not experience ultimate happiness, and they will not ultimately prosper. Do you believe it? I read recently of teen suicide rising in America. Did you know that? In fact, here in our city, there have been at least a couple of teens that have committed suicide from local schools. And one of the factors, the, the so social media is not the problem in and of itself, but one of the factors is social media for these teens. Because on social media, there's all kinds of gossip, all kinds of slander, all kinds of tearing of each other down. So that somebody can ruin somebody's reputation within one minute of posting something, right? On social media. But not only that. Because social media, as you post selfies and you post your experiences, some of these teens, it breeds discontentment in the hearts of others who are watching them. Their friends, their acquaintances, those who are watching them from a distance. How come I can't have that? How come I can't be happy like that guy, like that girl? How come I can't have her body? How come I can't have his good looks, his good hair? How come I can't experience those things? How come I can't have the friends that they have? It breeds discontentment, doesn't it? And so what are they left to do? Without the gospel and Jesus Christ and the hope of Christ, listen, they don't have lenses through which to look at those things and, and a framework to process through all of that hopelessness and despair and helplessness and vanity. 
Christ brings perspective. Christ brings everything into focus, right? And the vanity of self-pursuit, self-idolatry, to cause us to and move us to pursue the Lord and to delight in Him. The wicked are not sovers for, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. In contrast to the wise, notice, who is like a tree, stable, fruitful, flourishing. The wicked are like chaff, unstable, it's quickly fleeting, it will pass away. It brought back the picture of the ancient Near East at harvest time, where after the harvest wheat was crushed with a threshing sledge, the farmers would then take their winnowing forks or shovels and they would pitch the crushed grain into the air. And what would happen? The heavier grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would be blown away by the strong winds on those hills, thereby separating the useful grain from the worthless chaff which was to be burned. He says that's what the wicked are like. In Matthew 3, verse 12, John the Baptist is baptizing people that are coming to him and the hypocritical religious leaders come to him to be baptized. And John the Baptist takes an opportunity to confront them on their hypocrisy. And he says, he says that the, he, told, he announced that the Messiah was amongst them. And that one of the things that the Messiah would do, it says in Matthew 3.12, was that he would separate essentially the wheat, the wheat from the chaff. His winnowing fork is in his hand, John the Baptist says. He meaning Christ. And he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Beloved, be not deceived. One day Jesus will do this. He will separate the sheep from the goats, those who are true followers of Christ, from those who are pretenders. And those who have lived a life of wickedness, who have not acknowledged God, who have not acknowledged His Son as Lord and Savior, but live for themselves, will burn forever in hell. Hell is a real place. Hell is a place of unending punishment and pain. You know why? As a reminder forever and ever of the seriousness of sin and the infinite cost of your sin that you cannot pay no matter how many years and years you spend in hell forever and ever. And nobody, nobody, no wicked person will spend forever in hell because of the fact that they were too great of sinners. Wicked people will spend forever in hell because they rejected the only one who could pay for their sins, namely Jesus Christ, right? Because there's always hope with the cross of Christ. See, we can be on the path of destruction, but pretend like we are not. We can fool people, but we can't fool God. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, no matter what, one day everything will be exposed, beloved. No matter what you are hiding in your life, if you have lived a life separate from God, not acknowledging God in disobedience to His Word, you will be eternally separated from Him, and the time will run out. You will no longer have time to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. See, someone must pay for your sins. The difference between the wise and the fool is that the wise trusts in Jesus who already paid for his sins. The foolish person, the wicked person, is the person who rejects Jesus and the only hope of salvation from their sins. That's the difference. The wicked are like chaff, says the psalmist. They will soon pass away. They won't stand the the test of time. 
You see, time and testing has a way of revealing our true character, right? Our genuine devotion and where it lies. For us as Christians, I, I find this comforting. Because we often may wonder if living for God on this earth is worth it. I mean, they look so happy. What's the use, right? They look so prosperous, so worry-free. Beloved, listen, don't drink Satan's Kool-Aid, all right? Of deception. He wants you to think that. I spent time a couple of days ago with somebody who, from, uh, uh, from a distance, seemed to be so happy, so fulfilled, um, uh, being an expert in their particular skill that they, are, that they have their business in. And after spending just a few minutes with them, it was very evident that they were crying out for my help, knowing that I'm a pastor. They weren't happy. But you look at their website and their business, they look really, really happy. And they talk about all of their experiences and all that they've been able to do to impact people within their particular skill. But they were not happy. There was all kinds of chaos in their home. They needed to hear the hope of Jesus. Don't drink Satan's Kool-Aid. We live in a broken world with full of deception. And one of Satan's destructive lies is they are really happy and you don't need Jesus. You can do this on your own. Listen to me. There is no happiness, no fulfillment, no satisfaction, no blessing apart from Christ. In Him are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, He is the great reservoir of all blessings. Amen? So Psalm 1 teaches us that if we want to be blessed... To live fulfilled in this life, we must delight ourselves in God and His Word. But we are also reminded, secondly, that if we don't, there will be eternal consequences. Notice, secondly, consider that there are two distinct ends. Two distinct ends in verses 5 through 6. There are two paths that have two very different finish lines, right? Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. It brings to mind Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You know what the wicked, what the end of the wicked is? Judgment before God. This is talking about the final judgment where they will not stand accepted before a holy God based upon their own righteousness or their own goodness or anything else. Not only that, but they will be excluded from the assembly or fellowship of the righteous. Why? Because sinners who have not had their sin dealt with cannot be in God's presence with other righteous sinners in Christ. Right? They will be excluded from a place of paradise. Notice verse 6 then expands upon the core reason for their judgment. And here it is. Summarizing the two paths of life, here's the concluding statement in verse 6 that you need to pay attention to. Why are the wicked heading for judgment? Why will they be separated and excluded from the assembly of the righteous? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will what? Perish. You know what it all comes down to? Do you know the Lord? Or more importantly, as Galatians 3 puts it, does God know you? Right? Is there a relationship there? This is not talking about an intellectual or factual knowledge here. It refers to an intimate knowledge of a relationship bound by love. It is the type of intimate knowledge that the psalmist in Psalm 139 verse 1 and verse 3 says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You're intimately acquainted with all of my ways. 
The Lord knows, has regard for the way of the righteous. He knows them, right? He has trailblazed the path for us already. He cares for us. He's watchful of us. By contrast, God does not know the wicked in an intimate way. He knows their wickedness. And based upon their wickedness and rebellion, the wicked, verse 6, will perish. It comes down, beloved, to knowing God and God knowing you in a relationship, right? Toward the end of his sermon on the mount in Matthew 7, 21, Jesus uttered these words, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Intimate knowledge, relationship, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Their lack of relationship with God and their love for God and their delighting in God ultimately flowed onto a life of not doing what he said. Not loving obedience. Which path are you on today? Which path are you on today? There are only two ways, the narrow way and the broad way. The narrow way leads to life and few find it. The Broadway is like a freeway, and everybody there is telling each other how they're doing a good job, and they're all heading to destruction, right? There are only two ways, and you're either on one or the other, on the way of life or the, end of the, or the way of destruction. Do you know the Lord this morning? Do you know the Lord? I'm not talking about, do you know some facts about God? Are you a religious person? I'm not talking about those things. Do you know God? There is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, right? Clayton Kershaw is my favorite athlete, and he's a believer. I love that guy. Great, great pitcher. I know a lot of things about Clayton Kershaw, but I don't know Clayton Kershaw. I don't have a relationship with him, I wish, right? I don't know Clayton Kershaw. We can know a lot of things about God, but not know God have a relationship with him. And listen, the wise person described here is not the person who knows about God, has a lot of knowledge, who is morally upright, a morally upright person, or a person who knows a lot about the Bible, or one who has been around the church over a long time, over many years. It's the person who knows God because they have trusted in the person of Jesus Christ and been forgiven of their sins and entered into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is the righteous person described in Psalm 1, who has put their faith, Psalm 2, verse 12, upon the Son, right? Worships the Son, takes refuge in the Son, God's appointed King. Blessing ultimately comes in finding refuge in God's Messiah. So you want to be blessed? Enter by the narrow gate. Build your house upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you, don't procrastinate with your soul anymore. Come to Jesus Christ. Stay on the narrow path, the path that leads to life, beginning in the here and now. Today, today is the day of salvation. Don't be like that man in John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, who gets to the end of his life and is forgiven, praise the Lord, but he wasted his life. Don't be that person. That's the message of this psalm. That is the gateway into the Psalter, right? Be that wise person who fears the Lord and who puts their faith in the Son. And if you claim to be on the narrow path and you're a professing believer, let me ask you this. What does your life show? 
What do your affections show? Your desires. And then your life. Are you saying no to the world and its passing pleasures or drinking the Kool-Aid of the world system and exposing yourself more to what the media says and what the politics politicians say and to what everybody else is saying about life and all of that and allowing them to shape your, your perspective of what's taking place in our, in our world? Or are you going to the Word? Are you hearing from God and delighting in His Word so that His Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ shapes your perspective? Where are you at, believer? Where are you at, Christian? Who are your greatest counselors? Who are your greatest voices? Do you find yourself adopting more of the world's mindset and lifestyle than exposing yourself to God and embracing His Word? This is the challenge for us, even as believers this morning. And what do we learn about our Heavenly Father? That He's patient, isn't He? He's so patient. We are in this world, and we're preaching right now, and I'm calling you who have not repented of your sins to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm calling you. God is patient and patient and patient. But listen to me. He's also just. He's also just. And one day he's going to render punishment and consequences per this psalm upon people who have made choices to walk in wickedness and godlessness and not give him thanks or give him praise. You see? The wicked and their path leads to eternal punishment. The wise leads to eternal happiness in the present, through Jesus Christ, into eternity. Amen? May we be on the wise path, beloved. People who fear the Lord and who put our faith in Jesus the King. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, O Lord, grant us ears to truly hear and apply these truths to our lives. Help us to be doers of your word and not merely hearers who are self-deceived. Father, help us to be those who are on the path of the wise. Not wisdom by our own, Lord, moral bootstraps or by our own understanding or our knowledge, but the wisdom that comes from fearing you and putting our faith in your Son through your word. That wisdom. Help us to walk on the path that leads to life. Quality and quantity of life. Beginning in the present but forever where we will worship the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Help us to be on that path, Lord. And for those sitting in here this morning who are on the path leading to destruction, Father, may this be like a bucket of ice water poured upon their heads, a time of awakening to their spiritual complacency and lethargy. And may they be reminded of your love and your grace and your mercy and your patience as seen in this psalm, Lord, and even allowing them to be here to hear this message of how they could be truly happy in you, blessed by you, not according to how they define happiness, but according to how you define happiness. For you created us to glorify you and to delight in you. You are most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in you. As our brother John Piper says, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.